All right. So Shahar, you're you're happy enough just to kind of like uh, sort of like be the guy in the hot seat, you know, I'll, I'll do my introducing best. everyone or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Great. We'll, we'll, we'll so give we're just recording afterwards. audio, just to be clear, right? Uh, yeah, there's no, there's no uh, yeah. yeah. Great. No one, no one will ever know you were in your jammies this morning. Now, these are not jammies. This is like a kind of surfy hoodie, you know? It's like... Surfy hoodie. Very, very fancy. Yeah, <laughs> not that I've ever surfed, but, you know, that's what it is. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, are we ready to go then? Yeah? Yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. This episode features a roundtable on Philip Cunliffe's latest book, The New 20 Years Crisis. And in a break with tradition, this episode also sees me jump out of the host seat and invite Shahar Hamiri of University of Queensland to take over the reins. Joining me uh, on the panel to discuss the book is the author himself, Philip Cunliffe, making his third appearance on the show, and Patrick Porter of the University of Birmingham. Tara McCormick was originally scheduled to join us as well, but she had to withdraw late in the day uh, due to an illness. So, as I noted a moment ago, this was Phil's third appearance on the show, and it was great to have him back to discuss this very important book. The last time he was on, he was talking about his his previous book, actually, which was called Cosmopolitan Dystopia. Um, That, as you may remember, if you were listening last year, was a survey of human rights discourse and global politics since the end of the Cold War. This new book takes the theme of liberal war-making, elaborated in that book, and attempts to read it through the lens of E.H. Carr's classic 1939 text, The 20 Years Crisis. If you're an IR scholar, you're already very familiar with the name E.H. Carr. It was on the eve of World War II that Carr wrote that we are living in a kind of interregnum, where an older form of world politics is dying, and we do not yet quite know the shape of the order that is to come in its place. For Carr, the great tragedy of his time was that the normative commitments of the intellectuals of the interbellum period, that is, commitments to the power of public opinion, to sovereign self-determination, and to international law institution and institutions, were incongruent with the mass politics that was rapidly emerging and sweeping away the old order. For Cunliffe, however, the lessons of Carr's study of the 1919 to 1939 period must today be applied in a kind of an inverted manner, for where it was mass politics that ultimately frustrated and undid the political project of the utopian idealists, we do not today live in such a massified moment. To the contrary, as scholars like Peter Mayer have described, we live in a demassified moment where the agendas of college-educated neoliberal Brahmins dominate unchecked. Worse, as Cunliffe explores, these new elites are kind of anti-utopians at the end of the day. They 
detest the values of the interbellum period, deriding public opinion and breaching sovereign self-determination in the name of so-called responsibility. Phil explores this argument through a number of fascinating case studies in this book, taking us from the salons of international relations conventions, which have been overtaken, of course, by critical theorists, a group of scholars whose methods are singularly symptomatic of the imaginary of our unipolar moment, to the hallways of Brussels, capitals of that grandest of examples of demassified neoliberal democracy, the European Union. The overarching theme that emerges in Phil's book is one of a shocking lack of self-awareness on the part of our political and intellectual elites. And as you'll hear, the panelists for the show, that is to say, myself and Patrick, and of course, Shahar joins in, uh, were on the whole fairly friendly to, to Phil's diagnosis. Uh, where we maybe do push back is on some of his normative suggestions. That said, I think despite these very few disagreements with Phil, uh, I think this is one of the more important episodes that we've ever done on this show. Uh, diagnostically, uh, Phil, I think, is one of the sharpest commentators around, certainly on the contradictions of our postmodern moment. Uh, before I sign off here, I will just briefly say thanks to Phil for coming on. Thanks also to Patrick and Shahar for their time and effort in helping to make this conversation happen. Okay, I'll stop there and I'll pass you over to Shahar Hamiri. Hi everyone and welcome to a special episode of Fully Automated. My name is Shah Hamiri, and I'm from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, which is on the eastern seaboard of that great southern land, um, currently known as the Prison Island, Australia. It is my pleasure to host this roundtable discussing Philip Cunliffe's provocative and exciting new book, The 20 Years Crisis, A Critique of International Relations, 1999 to 2019, which was published last year by McGill Queen's University Press. Today's effort, much like the uh, Bandung Conference and the New International Economic Order, is tricontinental. With me are Patrick Porter from the University of Birmingham in the UK, Nicholas Kersey from the University of Texas, Rio Grande in the United States, who's the usual host of this podcast, and of course, the main man himself, Philip Connolly from the University of Kent. Uh, Tara McCormack was meant to join us, but she had to pull out at the last moment uh, due to a bout of laryngitis. So we are very sorry for that. So welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me for this discussion. How are you doing? Doing good. well. Thanks, to her. Bye. Yeah. Thanks, well, Shahar. Best as we can, right? Yeah. Um, so without any further ado, I'd like to throw it straight over to Phil. Uh, and ask uh, a banal but maybe necessary question. So what motivated you to actually write this book? Yeah, so it was a, um, I suppose it was born out of frustration, um, which I don't know how, um, out of all the motives to for which one could write a book, I don't know if um, it's a more edifying motive than others, but the truth is it was born out of frustration. So in many ways, I mean, it's a critique of liberal internationalism and also more importantly, a critique of um, critical and constructivist approaches to international politics. And 
that was the area in which I located my own kind of work and outlook for a long time. And I was grew particularly over the course, the kind of the first, I suppose, the first half of my academic career. I grew more and more frustrated with the direction in which many of the critical and constructivist strands with which I was so enamored and entranced indeed um, when I started my academic career as an undergraduate and as a postgraduate, as they seemed to me not only to become more Baroque and esoteric over time in terms of the way in which they related to the world and um, to other intellectual approaches, but more tellingly and importantly, they seem to me to be increasingly apolitical, which is to say unconcerned with the most basic questions of politics, which is supposedly the thing that we're interested in, international politics specifically, but politics more generally, um, which is to say questions of power, questions of geopolitical rivalry, questions of state power, how we relate to the state, the nature of state power, and the question of competition for power, who competes for power and how and why. And all of those questions seem to, um, and those concerns seem to be fading away. And that seemed to me to be not only an oversight, but also um, it seemed to me to speak, to tell us something about the nature of the power itself, that it had become effectively invisible because the people who were supposedly the critical constructivist people who were supposedly most attuned to these questions and understood it in all of, you know, power in all of its kind of um, multivalent and nefarious forms, they seem to me to have become the most oblivious. And so this is what I, it was out of this um, concern that I um, decided to write the book. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, it seems to me that um, sort of in the background of your book is this idea that we are living through uh, a period of uh, change, maybe an interregnum, and I apologize for using the term because I know how much you dislike Gramsci, um, where an older form of uh, world politics is somehow dying or in the process of transformation and the new one is not yet uh, born or, you know, it's in the process of being born. But as you alluded to just there, the goal of the book is to argue that this transition also presents us with uh, an intellectual problem, uh, both because our categories of analysis are out of date with the new emerging order, uh, not least big changes like the rise of China, which I'm personally very interested in, but also that our normative ambitions are out of sync with what is going on as well. So Basically, this is the point at which uh, you go to uh, Edward uh, Hallett Carr um, and try to use him as, as an ally in the book. So we all know Carr, very well-known, foundational uh, and rather iconoclastic figure in the history of the discipline of international relations. Um, so Carr was living in a very similar period of transition and it was a arguably a ferocious critic of the intellectual complacency of his era. So your book essentially traces Carr's relevance uh, as an ally for our time in our search to comprehend the symptoms of our own crisis um, in arguably three ways. So the first is to uh, examine the extent of the actual overlap between the original 20 years crisis of 1919 to 1939 and the so-called new 20 um, years crisis from 1999 to 2019. The second, as you um, just mentioned previously, is looking at these lessons from IR to, uh, from car to IR theory, um, and at the extent to which IR theory today is infected by liberal utopianism, uh, even 
even though many people don't know it. Uh, and the third is by looking at what is arguably the grandest expression of utopian technocratic vision um, in, in our own demasified neoliberal uh, times, the uh, uh, European Union, which is also um, one of the major focuses of uh, the book. So going to, to that first claim, I think we should probably try and discuss them in, to some extent in, in order. Um, Carr's original target uh, was, uh, and I'm uh, quoting here, a collective identity shared across a fairly compact cadre of Western uh, liberal utopian thinkers, policymakers, analysts, and political leaders. Now, we can talk about quite a lot here, but let's just start with this collective identity. So Carr uh, saw the liberal commitments of the interbellum period, um, and especially the emphasis on the power of public opinion, sovereign self-determination, and the faith uh, in international law and institutions as rather vague uh, and indicative of the order's underlying fragility. Um, it's essentially as if the collective identity was only real in the heads of the managers and elites of the time. So this supposed harmony of interests uh, founded on the rocks of mass politics in the uh, 20th century. But liberal utopians today appear to be almost the opposite of those of the 20th century. Instead of revering public opinion, they extol the virtues of ignoring it and deride democracy. Instead of supporting sovereign self-determination, they often ignore sovereignty or have reinterpreted as responsibility. Perpetual peace has been replaced by perpetual war. Safe Carr argued that mass politics was inimical to the utopian elite's liberalism. Today's elite are not facing a vibrant and engaged mass politics. So the question to the panel then is to what extent do you agree that Carr's description of the problem of liberal utopianism is in, actually applicable today? And to what extent does it need updating? Does it make sense to discuss our current crisis through a Carian lens? So if I maybe kick off, um, just to say, so, I mean, uh, you're right, Shahar, to draw attention to my dislike of Gramsci. Um, or at least my scepticism. Part of the scepticism, I think, is that so much of his thought is kind of um, uh, misconceived or misapprehended, I suppose, as well as perhaps misconceived. But so, for instance, that idea of the that we live in a time of changes and there's the new, the old is dying, but the new cannot be born. I mean, it's a cliche which has been heard, you know, I mean, it could be said of in any year of the last 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, perhaps. Um, and so it's that I think the um, the fact that it's kind of very cliched. And I think rather than kind of repeating it, I think it's more the fact, the very fact that it can be repeated over so many years, I think, speaks to a kind of stasis um, within politics itself, that we keep on kind of recreating our own problems. Um, and no, and also as part of that kind of recreating the problems of liberal internationalism, the problems of the 20 years crisis, and that's part of the claim of the book. Um, so in terms of the, the argument, I mean, you're right that to set up the contrast, which is what I tried to do in the book, between um, Carr's time when he drew attention to the kind of the um, what he took to be the naive veneration of public opinion um, and liberal democracy and sovereign self-determination compared to the contempt within which many of those ideals are held today by the great and the good and the influential and the powerful. And I suppose the claim that I would make is, um, I'd say, I mean, I, I don't think it was restricted to the 
elites back in the interregnum, in the interwar period, I don't think it was restricted to the elites. I mean, I think the um, the commitment to liberal internationalism reached quite deep into popular mass politics. Um, and I think that's kind of visible around, say, the popular reaction to the Italian invasion of Abyssinia. There was a deep commitment to the League of Nations, which is um, remarkable if we you know if we think about it by comparison to the popular attachment to the United Nations um, since then. But that notwithstanding, um, I think the contrast, I, this is the contrast I tried to draw in the book. And I think, you know, Sarkar is not only um, the point of comparison is not only well, the, um, the juxtaposition between the interwar period and our own 20 years crisis, as I wanted to style it, is not only for points of comparison, but also for points of contrast. And I think the points of contrast that you picked up are as instructive as the similarities between the decline of this earlier liberal international order in the 20s and 30s and the decline of our own liberal international order today. Any of the other panelists want to um, come in on this point? Are we, um, can we use that contrast productively then to reflect on the immediate challenges of politics in our time? We can. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I love Phil's book is that he's more of a, uh, I think if I can say, he's more of a lumper than a splitter. If you can divide academics intellectually into the lumpers and the splitters. I myself try to be a lumper as well. Um, don't do it quite with quite with quite the brio that Phil does, does it with it. Uh, but uh, there's a few splits I'd like to suggest. Um, one of which is, I mean, my reading of Carr's 20 years crisis and Phil's is, shares a lot of similarities, but some differences. I see Carr as a little more conflicted and a little more agonised as an intellectual. First of all, he was partly a Stalinist, or at least a, a committed, a believer in state planning anyway. And part of his intellectual journey was towards the, 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 the utopian vision of a collectivised state. Um, and the book, 20 Years Crisis itself, was indeed a critique of, of sort of liberal utopian conceit, but it was also a critique of realism, or at least the kind of crude, mucked politique version of realism. And so Carr himself was wrestling between those two things as a kind of dialectic. I mean, I haven't got the advantage of Phil that it's, it's Phil's read it more recently than I have, so maybe this is remembering it wrongly. But I, I, rem I do remember the utopianism and realism being two different notes in his tune. And so that sort of raises the question, um, does there need to be a utopian element? I don't think there does, but I think that that's what some would say. There does need to be this this countervailing thing somewhere which points towards the new place or the no place. Um, and just and as, as a third, you know, very minor point to throw into this, uh, I don't think there was a liberal international order. And that's, that's where I'm different to some other realists. I, I think that the whole proposition that we've lived through a liberal order that's failed is 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 uh, a category error. I think that ordering itself, even under the most benevolent hegemon we've had, is fundamentally a much more brutal, compromised, illiberal thing. And so the other day when President Biden said, can you imagine what people would think of America if we went around <laughs> interfering in people's elections? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a kind of a way of remembering the past, which some of the critics of that past are actually starting to believe themselves. That there was a liberal international order 
which has failed. I think, no, there were certainly attempts at liberal transformation, many of which were disastrous, and that's where I agree with Phil. But the international system and its anarchic pressures doesn't allow for a permanent experimental liberalism. So, that, so there you go. There's just a, a couple of minor things to hurl into the pot. So, so just uh, to pick up on this point, is it essentially uh, your claim that uh, this idea of a liberal international order is no more than an ideological gloss over what happened, or is there something more to what's going on there? Is that me or Phil? Oh, well, anyone. Oh, Phil, I'll leave it to the author. Um, Phil can answer all the questions. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, Patrick's challenge, I think, is profound, and um, and I'm sympathetic to it on on a number of levels. So I agree. I mean, I you know I so I know Mick Cox, for instance, who has just reissued um, has reissued Cars New Twenty as Crisis a New Edition, um, and it's um, you know with an excellent updated yeah. introduction and so on. Um, he defends Car from these charges of being a Stalinist. Um, you know, fellow traveler of the Soviet Union, sympathizer, and certainly kind of a strong believer in economic um, planning and dirigisme in contrast to what um, Carr took to be the kind of the failed um, hopes of 19th century liberalism. But he doesn't go as far as Stalinist, whereas I think um, I would, you know, I think Carr is more Stalinist than that. Um, and I think that is, um, it gives him certain kinds of insights, I think, over the course of um, 20th century politics, um, at the same time as obviously condemning him in, you know, kind of uh, not only in the obvious ways, but also in the less obvious ways, I think. His veneration of state power and um, his um, belief in the idea that uh, political, that kind of power is uh, the thing that kind of ultimately that kind of crude power is the thing that ultimately counts, I think, is something which is um, has been exposed as uh, being kind of inadequate to understand the dynamics of the 20th century, not least for the fact of the failure of the experiment on which he kind of wagered, which was the Soviet Union. Um, and, I mean, Patrick is absolutely right to say, you know, it is kind of that car is caught in the tension between the um he points to the fact that machtpolitik is ultimately empty and in his point of view it always requires this kind of supplement of utopianism and i think this is one of the this is the argument i make in the book but it's one of the problems of car's politics is that he condemns us to always kind of oscillate between these two poles of um kind of exuberant liberal utopianism on the one hand and then this kind of sterile but prudent political realism and that we're basically stuck between these two um, condemned for, for all of human history is my understanding to, con to oscillate between these two poles. And that doesn't seem to me to be um, either appealing or adequate an account of international politics as, as compelling as it is kind of given its um, you know, sim simplicity, I suppose. And then finally, on the liberal international order, here, would I, here I would disagree with Patrick. I mean, I suppose the... the it's a tough one because um, I would like to think myself no kind of no, you know, not to be any kind of starry eyed believer in liberal international order. But it and indeed that liberal transformation is something, you know, which has frequently been disastrous over the last 20 years of what I style as the new 20 years crisis. But it seems to me to perhaps um, gerrymander the game in advance to say that there is no possibility of liberalism in an anarchic political system. I mean, I suppose you could say that there is a deep complicity between um, anarchic systems and liberalism in as much as the ultimate um, anarchy that is at play is the anarchy of the market system. 
Um, and that that is the anarchy that kind of underpins the anarchy of the state system that is laid on top of it. But beyond that, I think that it's um, we can. I think it's legitimate to talk about liberal international order, not perhaps in terms in which it understands itself, but in terms of the way in which certain kinds of politics is justified um, in the institutions, the way they understand themselves, the way in which they legitimate themselves, the way in which they cast their appeal. Um, and even though those institutions and ideas and frameworks always kind of meet their limits very quickly, um, to simply say that it's to simply say that it doesn't exist by virtue of the fact that it's always kind of hypocritical and bloody, and that ordering is always a difficult process, and that it's always tortured and falls short of its aspirations, um, I'm not sure that I I'm not sure it's sufficient, though obviously. I partake in the same kind of critique that um, that uh, Pat levels at the at the international at the idea of liberal international. We might be able to Could find an armistice there, Phil. <laughs> Perhaps indeed, yeah. So my own. Um, um, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, over to you. Yeah, I was going to say I I think uh, that's not a bad place for me to maybe hop in there because I I was actually kind of wondering how this conversation would play out, you know, uh, for a number of reasons, but. Um, I, I'm very glad uh, Patrick um, kind of leapt in to sort of like sort of examine the, the car aspect of the debate because I'm certainly no expert on car and I wouldn't claim to be. My whole approach to this book has been to kind of read it as writ. Like I, I accept Phil's car. I have no possible, you know, kind of expertise to to say otherwise, which which leaves me in an interesting position because like what what am I turning to this book for? I think I'm turning to it for its sort of potential toolbox that it offers to to examine um, the the sort of demassified politics of our time. You know, uh, uh, Shahar, your 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 question kind of jumped into the um, the opening kind of pitch for the book here. Really, you know, the, the supposed harmony of interests of our time. Of what is it symptomatic, right? Um, and and is Carr helpful to? To, to bring us through that. I certainly think Phil's car is. Uh, there's there's a lot of um, uh, things here that, that and I think I, I, there's moments in the book, and you know, I, I was lucky I had Phil on the show uh, not not so long, maybe a year ago or so now, talking about his previous book. And uh, there was some of these lovely similar nuggets in that book too, where where Phil gets in sort of very diagnost, very diagnostic actually, um, the idea that you know what we're looking at here is a kind of an intellectual edifice, um, whether it's expressed in international relations as a discipline or expressed in other sort of areas of PMC culture, professional managerial class culture, the, the, the sort of whether it be in our in the media sector, whether it be in uh, the halls of government. Uh, I think you 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 see uh, a kind of an assumption, and I'm just sort of looking for it here. That this um, uh, this would be on page uh, nine of the introduction. Uh, this has been the pattern for globalizing liberalism of the last several decades, as Western states have obliviously promoted policies of democratization, humanitarianism, free trade, reliant on an unconscious cynicism that their interests were the same as everyone else's. A cynicism that was a, and I'm quoting, or at least this I think is a quote from, from Carr in this reference, a cynicism that was far more effective 
uh, diplomatic weapon and the deliberate and self-conscious citizenism of old-fashioned realpolitik, just to kind of get back to what Patrick was sort of saying there at the end. Um, the final contortion of liberal utopianism is to resolve itself in impotent moralizing as the liberal utopian, and again we reopened the quote, faced by the collapse of standards whose interested character he has failed to penetrate, takes refuge in condemnation of a reality which refuses to conform to these standards. I mean, I just think, you know, there are moments in this book where you have these nuggets where it just like all just seems to come to the leather and you you have almost kind of like this um, feeling that you have um, reading like Pericles' funeral oration or something where you just sort of see like that the, the, the absolute lack of self-consciousness of some of these people um, uh, being you, you find suddenly a language to assess that lack of self-consciousness, to assess its kind of narcissism and its exceptionalism. Um, and, um, you know, whether, because as, as we're going to proceed today, we're going to talk about IR theory, uh, we're going to talk about the European Union, and, and listeners are going to hear me uh, probably take some issue with Phil on the EU stuff. Um, but, you know, listeners to this show will know from, from previous conversations with, with Phil, because he's been on the show twice before that, you know, I've kind of been on a journey and that it's partly Phil's fault, <laughs> you know, because I think I probably used to be more of a sort of a critical liberal IR theorist of sorts, always sort of in instinctively kind of Marxist. But what does that really mean? It doesn't mean anything if you don't know what the stakes are. And I think bringing history in this way, uh, you start to get a very sharp sense of uh, the transitional nature of our moment. And I think that's something my work didn't necessarily have before. And it's, it's, it's people like Phil that have kind of helped me to, to get to that point, but, um, sort of re representing the ordinary listener here, um, where I, where I think I probably, at the very least I'm confused and I still haven't come to a conclusion is I, I don't know that while I'm totally on board with the diagnosis, I don't know that I'm fully on board with the prescription. Right. And, um, and, and so it's, it's Phil's sort of normative angle on some of this that I think possibly bears scrutiny. I mean, it, hopefully we'll talk more about it later, but do we really want to throw out all these sorts of what, what are for Phil very silly sort of, kind of pop cultural um, investigations in IR, are they really that useless? I don't know. I, in the past, I've done a little bit of that work, so I'm a little bit touchy on that subject. Um, but um, it, broadly speaking, I think in the sense that we've just outlined and this idea that th th this sort of flagrant narcissistic assumption that our interests are the same as everyone else's, I think today's academic elites, especially in IR, especially the hypercritical ones, are, are tremendously guilty of that. And it's a tremendous blind spot. I think this book is a huge corrective to that. So uh, yes, the short answer to the question, Shahar, is it is absolutely relevant and applicable. It's really... Uh, thank Phil, would you like to uh, respond or do sure, you want to yeah. uh, segue into the discipline of IR more specifically, I'd, given that... Nick well, I just quickly, I suppose, yeah. only to say, um, uh, I appreciate, uh, you know, I appreciate what Nick says. 
um, about the book. And I have to say, though, the you know um, the quotes that he kind of read out, um, which have car quotes embedded in them. That was very much my experience of rereading Carr for the book. I was astonished, you know, like um, it was always introduced to us in this way when we when we did Carr, when we studied Carr um, for the master's, at, uh, for my master's study at Carr's alma mater at Bristwith. It was always introduced in this kind of as what I've called in the book as a kind of ritual slaughter. Um, realism is set up to kind of be taken down yeah. as this kind of passe in, you know, um, self-evidently crude um, egotistical, selfish, nationalistic, militaristic kind of outlook, impossibly passe in a world which is all about kind of interdependence and complexity and um, uh, grander ideals than anything so limited and parochial as the outlook of um, of the nation state or what, whatever it might be. And so reading, reading Carr, I was amazed, rereading Carr, I was amazed to see the, these kinds of quotes and how apposite they seem to be to describe precisely the kind of outlook that Nick you know talks about this um amazing this astonishing complacency and the way in which we've recreated the basic liberal utopianism that Carr talks about so Carr says you know this idea that there's no political con- the liberal utopian doesn't think there's any political conflict it's all essentially misunderstanding and all these kind of disagreements will eventually kind of resolve themselves in the fullness of time economics will converge globalization free trade and kind of peaceful harmony will all lead everyone to converge on the same point. And any conflict in the meantime is kind of just friction, the friction of convergence. Um, and he's, he castigates that as deeply naive. And that seems to me that we've, uh, IR theories, which isn't to say just kind of academic seminar table discussions, but profoundly influential and important theoretical and intellectual flame frameworks have recreated that naivety, the belief that all that there is no there are no real conflicts, that it's all just kind of misunderstanding of different forms or um a clash of identities. And identities, as we all know, can be kind of socially constructed, remolded. Um, and this is what our new kind of theoretical framework tell us and therefore ultimately there is no political conflict i was amazed by um by seeing all of this in car that it spoke so directly to our own times um but and that we'd worse in fact that we'd recreated the same problems which car had sought to overcome we'd recreated them in different forms not perhaps in the form of the league of nations and international law but in um, ideas of constructivism and the European Union and so on, which I guess we'll come on to. The only thing I'd rather say is about the difference, I suppose, is I think that our pattern of politics today kind of proves Carr in reverse. So Carr's model is about how liberal kind of international politics founders on mass politics, on the integration of um, urban working class voters, the extension of the franchise, mass nationalism, nationalist politics, um, the expansion of large and powerful states based on these um, nations kind of struggling to assert their interests against others. Um, and all of that seems to me, he says, liberal internationalism can't survive in that context. And it seems to me the reason that we have liberal internationalism today is precisely because that context is gone. So that mass politics has been suppressed, um, demobilized, kind of diffused in various ways through supranational politics. Um, and so this is the way in which liberal international politics has been recreated in the aftermath of the Cold War, I think, over the last 30 years, by the suppression of mass politics. So 
the claim in the book is that car is proved in reverse, as you as if you want, because um, mass politics that brought liberal international politics low in the interwar period has been suppressed um, over the last thirty years, and this is why liberal international politics, a liberal international order, um, if if that's possible, if it's legitimate to talk in those terms, um, Patrick's criticism notwithstanding, that it survives by virtue of the suppression of mass politics. So is it essentially the case that uh, contemporary liberal international order is pushing itself over rather than being pushed over by the emergence of mass politics? Is, is that essentially how it characterized the dynamics of that time? No, it's because the, it's because of the Russians. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, uh, the misinformation on the internet. Absolutely. And, and I see plenty of misinformation, so I get that. <laughs> <laughs> the evil, the evil genius in the Kremlin, the greatest kind of strategic mastermind in human history. He's always like twenty steps ahead, knows every chess move, and um, is uh, manipulating the internet as well as you know, kind of uh, everything. Basically, everything that happens in the world uh, runs in the favor of the Russians. So yes, the the Russians are responsible. Um, well, beyond that, um, the I I'm suppose the, that, by the, way. <laughs> but the answer that I the answer that I try to give in the book, at least, is yes, that it's uh, it un, the liberal international kind of order has overreached and um, begun to undermine itself through its own hubris, um, at least in some specific ways, uh, not least um, what I call kind of the pattern of um, of uh, re inverted revisionism which is the kind of the behavior of the states that won the Cold War, the US in particular, but it's undermining the status quo. Again, kind of in contrast to Cars Day, when it was these kind of states that didn't, that the revisionist states were the ones who didn't benefit from the status quo. And here we have states that benefit from the status quo that are or revisionist. Up until recently, that were revisionist, yeah, revising yeah. the international order in favor. Um, and so here you have, I think, a pattern of liberal, liberal, liberals undermining their own order and um, blaming others, such as you know Vladimir Putin, um, while doing so. I, I, could I jump in on, on this point? I mean, I want to open up a bit further this issue of something that Phil's book talks about a lot: uh, the relationship between power and intellectual life and in particular the academy, but also beyond. Um, I'm, I'm struck by by this really interesting symbiosis here that with the success of an order, liberal otherwise, certain delusions can form. Uh, and what, what Phil writes so piercingly about the way in which, partly as a result of a period of, at least for the middle class, relative peace and prosperity, um, so much, so many delusions can take root. For example, the wishing away of politics, right? The desire to replace real politics, that is the fundamental division and dispute about how the world should be and about power and resources, to replace that with a kind of technocratic understanding about information that you either have the right information or you don't, and we've got to find out a way of getting it to you. Or you have the right information or you're manipulated by some sinister external force. I mean, the reason I brought Vladimir Putin in, is it's not that I think that Russia doesn't meddle and try and sow mischief, it's that it's become like a medieval function of the devil, 
where everything that is that is that is wreaking havoc at home can be sheeted back to this kind of malevolent force that's unfalsifiable in a sense. Um, I, I mean, I again, I I think this is absolutely true, but I don't think it's peculiar to a to a liberal order. I think there is something about. I mean, I'm, there's a project in my back of my mind, I'm always promising to get to, called unipolar moments the way in which the most dominant state goes through certain intellectual cycles. There's a memory of fragile birth. There's a memory of great emergency. There's a memory of humiliation. There's a memory of emergency. And then there's a memory of rise. And then having risen, the belief that one is special and exceptional and exempt from the pressures of everybody else. You find this in Ming China. You find this in ancient Rome. You find it in modern United States of America. Um, what you write, Phil, reminds me, in fact, of um, as well, uh, of what uh, Arthur Eckstein writes. He's a structural realist who writes about classical history, ancient history. And he said this, if you let me just read a quick read, um, talks about the debate between realists and constructivists. He said, uh, the originators of constructivism were mostly American scholars writing in the 1990s, not only in a world that the United States dominated, but within a society that extraordinarily in history had little experience of what it felt like to be acted upon violently and decisively by the outside, by others. I think he meant in that sort of generation. Only intellectuals ensconced in the safety of that American world of the 1990s of, of expected or rather unconsciously assumed complete security before September 11, 2001, could have doubted that a state's need to establish security against a rivalrous and hostile world was a real need and not merely be a matter of destructive discourse. So uh, I think I think you're onto something, uh, and I then wonder if the world is breaking apart in different ways. Whether paradoxically that might actually be intellectually productive, at least. Yeah, I mean, I I would I think I would agree that the the world breaking apart is intellectually productive. I think, and I think that's already visible. I think in the um, in some of the debates that are happening at the moment with respect to change, you know, not least indeed with uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan um, and some of the debates that have been breaking out, not, I mean, indeed with um, with your own work, um, Patrick, as well as that of Stephen Bertheim and others about the um, kind of excesses of the unipolar moment and so on. So I think the world breaking apart is... Um, is intellectually productive, and I think in many ways it's the it's the ultimate kind of critic, and far more incisive and cutting than any um, critical theory promulgated by anyone could ever be. It's the ultimate kind of it's the ultimate kind of razor and test of um, of our ideas, and I think this is something that is that is forgotten in the unipolar moment is the way in which politics, just the simple fact that politics is contested, um, when people feel like they have to choose sides and that there's different kind of options and interests and stakes involved, that it requires a far more discriminating outlook than was hitherto available. And I think all of that is true. I suppose I would say, um, well, I take the point that all the, you know, power always comes with conceit. I would say I think that there is something perhaps I would hazard at least that I think perhaps there is something distinctive about liberalism and modernity and the way in which it conceives of power, which is different, I think, from pre-modern ideas um, or equivalent kind of moments of unipolarity in the sense of its understanding of agency, of universalizing 
instincts and in its sense of um, the possibility of transcending and overcoming the previous pattern of human history and avoiding cycles um, and cyclical patterns. And I think that is something which I which I would hazard is um, is different from the patterns of earlier unipolar moments. Um, but I, I take the point that there is obviously a deep connection between um, power and intellectual life. And one, this is one of the, you know, I mean, this is one of the key arguments of the. By the way, just very quickly, and just some supporting evidence for your side on that one. I was at a lecture a few years ago where a very well-meaning, very brilliant professor was saying, was talking about mis- the problem of misinformation. And his overall underlying assumption, which he didn't really tease out, was that people have the have the wrong politics, the wrong values, because they have the wrong information. There was no sense at all in which the dialectic often actually moves the other way. People seek out and select information to confirm pre-existing worldviews. Politics for him was never prior to the information. The information was the original point and and we had to kind of soar back through all through all the mess to get back to it. There's something about there's something very there's something quite sinister about that actually. Well, I think this is probably a good moment to kind of go uh, into the uh, second part of uh, the book in terms of the key claims that it makes, and that is about the discipline of IR itself. Um, we we kind of teased out some of these points so far, but I think uh, it's worthwhile spending a bit of time on this. Uh, Some of the book's probably most provocative moments are uh, where Phil uh, gives an absolute roasting to certain parts of the IR discipline. Um, Some some of these passages are almost uh, laugh out loud uh, funny, you know, (laughs) in in how he uh, takes on some of these ideas, and I enjoyed them very much. Um, so I think we can agree that there's a, a kind of lack of self-awareness that uh, exists in certain parts of uh, the discipline of IR. Um, but probably for us, something we can discuss here is what, what do we take from that? I mean, what, what do we, how do we engage with these problems? Uh, is it about... Um, uh, maybe doing away with the discipline as we understand it. Does the do the boundaries of the discipline need to be policed? I mean, what are you actually getting at uh, in that book, Phil? And what do other people think about it? Well, I mean, I'd be I'd be curious to hear what Nick and what Nick and Pat think about some of these claims. About you know, my feeling is, I mean, I think after writing the book, I feel like it's too late to make um, IR kind of either critical or realist. I think that that moment is probably past, which isn't to say that I don't think that useful work can be done in particular domains of study, whatever they might be, um, you know, war and the same kind of grand questions. But I think that there is no that there is no way to have a coherent conversation that is internal to a discipline um, about those questions with its, you know, with its um, orthodox and heterodox kind of wings with the competing competing uh, disagreements within those wings but among within the orthodox and the heterodox i think there's just too much kind of it's too sprawling and conceited and decadent i think um and i think i mean there is no there is no clear kind of uh, 
one-to-one relationship between the unipolar moment and its intellectual um, products. So there will be, a, I think, we'll live for a fair, you know, for a long time with the with the sprawling kind of overhang, intellectual overhang of unipolarity within the discipline of international relations. So. I think probably to that extent, I think it's not, you know, to, it's essentially unsalvageable in terms of bringing it back to the essential questions of power, which is like I say, and that's not to say that there is impossible to have useful conversations about those questions in an academic and scholarly way. And indeed, I think, I mean, I think it's also telling that many of the most interesting of these conversations are actually had outside of the traditional academic journals. Um, and I had, you know, I mean, many of the most interesting conversations about these questions are being had outside of the, you know, the dominant journals in the field. Um, so that would be my, you know, that would be, I suppose, uh, one claim I would make is I think it would pr- it'll probably take a lot more than simply uh, a minor kind of recalibration of power at the geopolitical level before the intellectual kind of superstructure of the discipline and its wider kind of the para para academic circles that um, are linked to it before they can recalibrate as well Uh, Nick and uh, Patrick, or I can jump in there. Um, so, I mean, I think w- what I find super compelling about about the book in these various moments that you were mentioning earlier on, Shahar, these sort of laugh out loud moments, whether it's um, you know in IR doing investigations into you know toilets in Scotland, or uh, you know, and what that means for IR, are the the, the deep dive that Foucault, jeez, uh, uh, I'll clip that out of the the, the, the recording. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was an unfortunate slip. I'll just, I'll just like, leave it in. I'll just leave it in. <laughs> um, we'll do it live. Uh, but yeah, and so Phil, uh, the, the other F, uh, the other the other great scholar whose name begins with a sound like an F. Um, the uh, you know the, the the moment where you're sort of talking about Anthony Burke's work with with the, the the various other people who were part of that collective doing planetary politics and I mean certainly you know the, the criticism really lands at those moments because I think probably even those scholars today some of them at least would, would look back with with a hint of regret um, at at the maybe frivolity of of that kind of work and it is kind of embarrassing in a in a sense uh my god some of them could be listening to this so i'd I'd be better be careful what i say but um but it is kind of interesting how you know that work was kind of already itself symptomatic of a pre-2016 kind of mindset and a lot of things got turned upside down then i think a lot of people began to experience something like um an intellectual voyage then necessarily forced by the facts so many of the criticisms of uh, the, the, the car infused criticisms um, of this intellectual movement it's lack of awareness about power it's lack of self-awareness of its own sort of moralizing universalism uh, the, the assumption that everyone w- 
everyone will benefit if they all just sort of glom on to this sort of spirit of planetary politics, that it's like it's a win-win for everyone and everything. Even even the mushrooms will benefit from, from these uh, sorts of moves, right? Uh, and, um, you know... Um, in a sense, then, to sort of echo a point, I don't remember where it was in a in the book, but 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 Phil talks about a whole generation of middle class young people being raised sort of through the edifice of this kind of educational program in our colleges and our universities uh, to think that the problems of the world were elsewhere, right? And and so what this what this um, uh, project essentially did was it, it failed to check its own house. You know, like it, it failed to check uh, what uh, what what the stakes were in terms of the application of its own program. I think that that's a very powerful point, and I think um, you know all these various humorous moments in the book in this chapter. Uh, you know, I think. Definitely, the critique lands there in that point. But you know, I was—it's funny because I was reading a piece by Zizek the other day, a short little piece uh, that he wrote in in the RT in Russia Today, and um, it's called "The Difference Between Woke and True Awakening." And just to, to summarize it very briefly, you know, he sort of calls out, I think, many of the same kinds of uh, problems that 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 Phil is addressing in this part of the book. But but he ends by sort of making a offering a curious provocation. And I'd be super interested to see what Phil has to say about it. Um, because he, he, he sort of says at the end, like, look, the, the, the problem with, um, shall we say, broadly speaking, critical theory, critical race theory, post-structuralism, whatever you want to call it, and the way it has inflected our political movements today, um, you know, urban middle class, as they are, tone deaf to their own sort of lack of consciousness of the, the lived experience and problems of the, the, the working class as they are. Um, the, the problem with this is not so much where they want to go. It's how they want to get there. It's their lack of efficiency. I mean, who amongst us doesn't want to live in a world that has, you know, um, achieved uh, many of the promises of feminism. You know, who amongst us doesn't want to live in a less racist world? Of course, we all want these things. That's not the point. And, and we, we end up sort of getting walked into um, a kind of a double bind, I think, when we, when, we, when we start to sort of address these comments where we ourselves kind of end up then being, being kind of targeted as, you know, being incapable of seeing our own white male privilege, whatever have you. And uh, being therefore seen as being part of the problem. Uh, so, so, so where I sort of think um, it's 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 and, and of course we can we can open this out throughout the rest of this conversation. But where I think it's kind of interesting to to question or or, or, or ask Phil, you know, is 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 to sort of ask this question: you know, is it is it is it all so deeply symptomatic? As as you're making it out to be, uh, you know, is is there is there a good faith way of integrating planetary politics into our examination of the world? Um, and that's not even to say that your criticism is wrong. It's just to sort of ask: Is there a way to sort of maybe just say like that their longer term point is fine? It's it's how they're getting there that's the problem. Yeah, it's a good. I mean, it's uh, it's really powerful challenge i suppose and i would i suppose i i suppose there are two answers i could give i think the the way in which 
you know, the, the claim the claim that I make in the book is the planetary politics or the vision, that vision of planetary politics, which is put forward by Anthony Burke and his um, colleagues, mm. collaborators, is that we will have planetary politics, but it will look very different from what they anticipated and expected. So they're, you know, the kinds of claims that they made were that um, the Amazon basin or the Arctic Ocean should be given the status of nations in various international fora so in that we would kind of um, pay, you know, give uh, the requisite attention to these parts of the world that are overlooked in favor of kind of merely human concerns. And that seems to me, you know, that seems to me kind of problematic in all sorts of ways because, um, I mean, nobody lives in the nobody lives in um, the Arctic Ocean, um, but you know the Amazon basin. I mean, those those are countries, nations, and peoples. You know, and they have um, those aren't just geographic areas. Those are kind of places where people live who have all sorts of interests and aspirations that go beyond the ecological concerns of Western academics. And so this is the question, I suppose, you know, this is, I think, the um, that if there is to be a planetary politics, it can't get around that question. And thinking in terms of geographic regions that are under environmental stress, I think, is the problem. So we will have a planetary politics, but as I suggest in the book, it's going to be one which is of, um, say, competition over the warming Arctic over competition over the sea routes that are opened up by the Arctic melting, competition over um, new sources of uh, new natural resources such as lithium, rare earth metals that will be needed for the so-called kind of green industrial revolution, new sources of um, for electric batteries and what have you. And that is the way that planetary politics will be felt. It won't be felt um, from the vantage point of the unipolar era, it will be felt from the vantage point of a more fractious and contested world order, and um, for better or for worse. But I think there's no way of getting around it. So if we are to have some kind of response to those challenges, it will be one that won't that we can't kind of um, treat various parts of the world purely as if they're ecological units, rather than places where people, nations exist, people live with all sorts of aspirations and hopes, um, which aren't, you know, um, purely set by environmental questions. It's really interesting as well. I mean, I really, I would join the spirit of what, what Nick was saying, uh, uh, that in a sense, it's not so much necessarily the questions we're asking, but 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 ways ways of, of inquiring about them. I mean, I, I think there's there's a couple of things going on here which are a bit different to Carr, in the sense of the intensity of the scrutiny of not not intellectual life, but but the form of intellectual life that we have as academics compared to his time, uh, and uh, what what are the things that makes Phil's book interesting and different to Carr is 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 the centrality of of the permanent intellectuals in it. And 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 their complicity in what's gone wrong, um, I see it a little bit differently. Uh, not so much. I, I agree with a lot of the delusions and everything, but I think there's some other things going on. First of all, from within, there is a number of number of ways in which um, academia has lost its way. One of which is certainly in the kind of the more North American positivist area. You get people who are who are training, being trained to be almost pure methodologists who are accounting things for the sake of counting and who are therefore posing only sort of narrow questions which which can be answered by counting. 
And by doing so, you, almost by definition, you lose sight of some of the biggest questions. But then on the other side, more stereotypically in other parts of the world, uh, people are not doing that. They're rather training themselves to talk about themselves and to mm-hmm. cultivate a state of hyper self-awareness and consciousness mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the point where you don't get out of bed in the morning without asking epistemic questions. And you lose, you lose sight of the basic crude thing, which is to ask about the world around us and how it came to be and what is the problem what can we do about it. And um, you're not going to get anywhere near planetary crisis in a state of, of hyper-self-aware, sort of contemplative, almost sort of philosophy department stuff about, about what you're doing. But I think there's also something that's, which has been visited upon academia, which is the, the university life as it's devolved into kind of large commodity-producing degree factories in which um, people are essentially coming to get credentialed in order to enter the economy. And the life of the academic has become one for a lot of people. I mean, I'm in a very fortunate position because I got in slightly earlier, but for a lot of people it's become about endless grueling rounds of grant applications and online training and sort of the the sort of the sort of increasingly centrally administered teaching formats, et cetera, et cetera. That's a world and and, and people are writing to to kind of fulfill Soviet style production quotas. That's That's a life in which people are writing an awful lot about stuff that actually doesn't get at the big questions and they're writing for the sake of writing. Uh, and so from both within and without, there's been this tremendous degradation of intellectual life, even though there's more people permanently employed to be intellectuals than there have ever been, uh, which is which is a, a great shame. But I think gets at some of the some of the problems apart from the delusions you're talking about, Phil, some of the other things that are happening. Uh, I guess you might call you might maybe you just use a different language. You use this word decadence. Um, I use the word corruption, but maybe we mean the same thing. Anyway, that's my 10 cents. Yeah, I mean, I would, um, you know, I would agree with a lot of that, I think, if not indeed all of it. And I would uh, would even go as far as to say, I think perhaps that some of those things that you described, Pat, are in fact part of the uni- that unipolar kind of moment as well. Um, the kind of the uh, concentration of intellectual effort, either in kind of the the purely kind of positivistic and quantitative methodological side or the kind of hyper self-aware philosophical side, that polarization of effort seems Mm. to me to be um, two sides of the same coin. And they both seem to take for granted certain things about the world, you know, that it's that certain kind of basic questions are settled about power and the division of resources. And so to that extent, both of them seem to me to be complicit or at least tacitly um, settled on top of a certain distribution of power of and of um, political power, of geopolitical kind of um, questions. So all of these, so to some extent, I think all of those things are part of the same problem. And the neoliberal university, the um, the, I think that's part of the issue as well. That uh, kind of certain intellectual effort gets sucked up in particular directions. I think part of our, you know, the part of the problems, I think, indeed, that we confront, I'd even hazard to say that so many of our politicians and state personnel, um, so many of the smart people over the last 30 years, they were, you know, taken up into banks and finance. Um, and this is partly what explains why the political leaders that we have um, have been so weak. I think that is also in a different way part of this moment of unipolar globalization. 
So I think all of these elements are, um, I think, reinforced, you know, they're self-reinforcing in all sorts of ways. Do you think that actually the uh, intensifying geopolitical uh, rivalry, at least let's call it that, um, that we're seeing today is going to change meaningfully the conditions of uh, intellectual endeavour at the university? I mean, what, what we're seeing, I mean, for instance, in, uh, say, China or, or countries um, uh, that are aspiring to, um, to climb up that inter international ladder is actually the harnessing of, of uh, universities in some kind of national development or some kind of national, uh, I, I wouldn't use the word war, but, you know, some kind of national effort to, to rise up. Uh, and then they also experience very significant controls uh, over what they can and can't do, what, what they, uh, how they engage with power. So... Mm -hmm. Do, do you think that uh, the, the reemergence of power is the solution to our intellectual problems? Well, I suppose there's two separate questions is how far um, a, how far heightened geopolitical rivalry will cramp um, what can be thought about um, in a scholarly, academic or intellectual way, and how far heightened geopolitical rivalry, forces us to think about our issues in a new way. And I suppose those are two separate things. I mean, they're, in, you know, they they overlap, but they can nonetheless be separated. So I would like, I hope, and I think at least, and part of what motivates the book is that if we do live in an era of ge heightened geopolitical rivalry, which I think we do, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest, you know, I don't want to kind of settle the question whether it's a bipolar world or a multipolar world or what have you, but I do think there is more kind of geopolitical rivalry. And I think that forces us to think more clearly about basic questions of power um, but that's a separate question. Yeah, I think that's a separate question from how far the state, um, in Western countries at least, how far it will seek to reorganize intellectual life or harness intellectual life to its purposes in a world which is no longer kind of globalized or no longer seen in globalized cosmopolitan terms. It's interesting is that this, the relationship between the state and, and the academic and the intellectual, in a sense, I kind of chafe against the ever close, ever closer commercial tie between the state and the and and the universities. I mean, I don't particularly like universities every I mean this is speaking from Britain. Well I'm in South Africa at night, but the British perspective of having to do a dance every seven years to please the state to get a certain amount of funding from the state. I think it's an entirely unhealthy patron client relationship. And from a patron who's getting increasingly hostile, may I say. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet at the same time I would like like Phil, like I suspect, like everyone here, like us fellow academics, to talk more and more seriously about power and the reality of geopolitics, uh, or at least have the conversation. Um, but even to say the word geopolitics and to talk about power, that that immediately would be off-putting for a lot of people. I think that's sort of regressive and parochial, and that anything that doesn't talk about climate change uh, or racism is is therefore a step backwards. But at least then you're having the argument. Uh, but uh, I would, it would be a terrific shame if, if we found ourselves in a position where we are both closer and closer to the state, yet less and less able to talk about the things that the state most wants to hear. If we had a more separate arm's length relationship with the state, maybe we'd be able to say more things they don't want to hear, which are good for it to hear. I don't know. I just, I, I, I 
think um, Phil and the, the guys on the Bunga podcast, when they were discussing this book, um, kind of kind of hit on this point. And I, I think it, I thought it was a, a good remark. The um, you know that 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 so much of the connection between the academic classes today. Um, you know, appeals almost sort of directly to the existence of a security state. And this was this wonderful moment, I think, in uh, Phil, what you were talking, maybe you could actually tell this anecdote here for people who haven't listened to that episode or read the book yet. But you talk about this moment, I think it was in, um, was it in in, in Portugal uh, or at a conference where they were talking? Oh, sorry, it was in Barcelona, I think, wasn't it? Sorry. And it was coming up on the referendum of Catalonian independence. And right there, then you, you noticed or observed participating in this thing, how on the eve of this vote um, and in, in discussing the current state of geopolitics, there was almost like a celebratory tone uh, that uh, the deep state, well, well our, our phrase, maybe not theirs, but the, shall we say, the, the national security blob, if you prefer, um, was, was uh, expected to be the guarantor of the liberal order in the face of Trump's obvious any any moment now potential to to have, have a Reichstag uh, event of some sort um, w- would that be a response to 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 what Patrick was was talking about there or or not? Yeah, it's so this so then I mean the the moment you mentioned is um, it was a conference of the European International Studies Association. Yeah. I was there. I don't know if any any of um, any of I can't recall if any of the other, of the, the rest of you were there, but it was in it was indeed in Barcelona, and it was maybe six weeks or so before the 2017 referendum on Catalan independence that was. Um, uh, which the central government in Madrid refused to recognize. And it was uh, it was a roundtable, one of these big roundtables at our conventions where the kind of leading luminaries discuss um, the state of the world, the discipline and so on. And I mean, the reason I recounted in the book was only to draw attention to the this kind of conceitedness was because no one, well, no one mentioned the upcoming referendum, which again seemed to be, I mean, very basic and fundamental about, you know, the questions of national independence, self-determination, um, the politics, the very pressing politics of the venue seemed to me to be a very important thing, which I would have imagined they would have at least kind of nodded to, even if not discussed perhaps in great depth, particularly given that a few weeks later, we would all have our, the scenes on our TV screens of um the Spanish cops kind of um, beating people up on the streets of Barcelona. But um, nobody even mentioned, say, at the time, what was the saber rattling of the Trump administration towards North Korea. And I was just astounded by this. Um, And when somebody raised it from the audience about how can we be, you know, how can, how can you all sit there and not talk about what's happening in the world? Um, One of the panelists batted back saying, Oh, it's fine because, you know, the joint chiefs of staff, um, you know, they'll take, care of it there's not going to be any problems and i was just it seemed to me um you know it was a critical panel and it seemed to me there you had the kind of that um interdependence of the supposedly kind of critical philosophers critical theorists with um the existing kind of uh, structures of power they were basically depending on the deep state as you say to um check and override a democratically elected um figure and they were very kind of, you know, um, settled about it. They had no qualms about it. And I found this astounding on so many levels. And so this is the this is the moment I kind of recount in the book. I don't know if it, I mean, I don't know if it's kind of the lesson, I suppose. I don't know that it offers any lessons about what to do about that kind of complacency. Um, 
I don't. But it's not just complacency, is it, Phil? It's a. If, sorry to jump in there, because because what 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 sort of gets my goat up when I'm reading things like this is is to kind of almost like. Well, maybe maybe I'm more cynic, cynical than, than Patrick's sort of understanding of what the state is or what it does. So, Patrick, you know, feel feel very welcome to, to to respond to this. But you know, at that moment, it seems to me that they're saying precisely what the state wants, right? And what you're actually seeing is very much a kind of a power relationship of a mutually reinforcing power relationship between uh, the apparatus of the state and these so-called critical theorists who vent endlessly uh, passages and passages on Agamben, state of exception, state of emergency. I mean, these are supposedly the people who hate the state. And and yet this sort of um, uh, incredible blindness, I think, in the post, in the, in the, well, in the after 2016. Go, go for it. What? <laughs> Say again? No, I, 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 agree with, I agree with you, Nick. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it takes us back to Gramsci, but yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> Well, it takes us back to it takes us back, I think, to to the overlap between um, someone like Carr and say Foucault, uh, at Foucault at his best, because Foucault is horribly misused in in IR. I've said that before, and I'm, I'm, that's a hill I'll die on. Um, and I, I think he's read as are often arguing what Agamben argues, as opposed to fundamentally, in some ways, a sociologist of knowledge in his own right. So, I mean, there's there's a strong overlap, I think, between between the kind of intuition of Carr and the intuition of Foucault when it comes to groups of people who narcissistically, uh, you know, are gatekeepers of um, a body of knowledge. They have uh, positions of preeminence within it. Uh, They benefit materially within these um, assemblages, to use the horrible word. And, uh, and, and and naturally they um, they're 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 very keen to, to 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 punch their clock and get their check at the end of the day. Um, so I don't you know in a way I'm kind of like it 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 doesn't surprise me that the end of a regime at the end of an era of unipolarity or or a, or a, a powerful a moment of power um, that uh, as the ship is going down you're going to see people kind of scrambling to be at the at, at the top of it as it's slowly sinking into the sea i mean the, these are the, the it, it it sort of makes sense that the uh the turf war is going to be expressed quite desperately um in terms of you know who has the moral preeminence who has the uh the, the kind of correct way of you know the morally correct way that sort of even as the ship is going down maintains the highest of its values you know uh, I don't I, know, maybe I'm not making much sense there, but it... I would I would complement that too, actually, by saying mm. a couple of, if I may, two observations about sort of the intellectual classes in academia and straddling the foreign policy establishment in, in the Trump moment. Um, one of which is um, I, I'm coming around to a theory about why they were so horrified by Trump, and I don't think it's for the reasons they usually expressed, at least on the foreign policy front, domestic, all sorts of. Things they objected to, and, and in many respects, rightly so. But I think on foreign policy, something else was going on. The, the, the rationale they gave for why they opposed and abhorred Trump on foreign policy was that he was threatening the foundations of the order, the, the alliances, the free trade, the nuclear balance, uh, uh, all of those things. But if you looked, if you looked pretty closely. Um, on things like, for example, NATO or most alliances, Trump was hardly materially shaking 
those at all. In fact, in many respects, he was reinforcing them and doing what the Joint Chiefs wanted and without even much of a fight, actually. So uh, substantively, there was a kind of continuity. Okay, frightening the horses, and it wasn't always stable day to day, but there was... A, so I think something else was going on. And I, my theory is that is that they hated Trump because he wouldn't euphemise power. Every other American president before and since takes great care to speak in the velvety language. Okay, George W. Bush during Iraq got a bit cowboy western, but most of the time they they have a way of euphemising and, and drape, draping power, draping foreign policy in this kind of uh, liberal universalist language appeal to the values and 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 you know the harmony of interests as E.H. Carr and as Nick's pointed out, all of those things. And Trump ripped that mask off. And that moment when he's defending when he's defending his soft attitude towards Putin, even while he's expanding NATO, <laughs> reinforcing NATO, heavily arming NATO, um, in, asserting ever more nuclear dominance over Russia, ripping up treaties so that America could be top of the pack. At that very moment where he's defending his desire to kind of get on with Putin better, he he turns to the cameras and says, "You think we're so innocent?" Yes, that was that's absolutely the, I that. appalling. That was appalling to them because it it. This whole underlying thing, which even quite a lot of the critical guys have, of America essentially is the innocent superpower, or is the unblemished superpower, and to be to be confronted with that, and to say actually no, the world the world you believe in is also based upon on blood and on coercion and, and all sorts of things, and the other thing is um, coming back to what Nick was saying as well, uh, the the attraction repulsion pass, passive aggressive relationship they have with realism. So on the one hand, we hear often realism is dead, realism is no longer hegemonic, realism is passe, realism obsolete. Okay, why do you need to talk about it all day? If it's such a negligible thing, why the obsession with it, right? It, if, if, it was, if it was the equivalent of flat earth, you wouldn't be so obsessed with it. There's something, there's something about they, they can't, they claim to abhor realism, but as the most powerful first cut of the world, I think, they can't look away from it. And they'd always come back to it, partly because they can't look away from power. There you go. Even as they renounce it, you know, which is the funny sorry. thing. Even as they re, even as they repudiate yeah. power or renounce repudiate any, you know, that's the last thing we want, you know. But obviously, yeah. you know, there's been umpteen criticisms of, uh, you know, how this worked in things like Occupy Wall Street, for example, how. Uh, you know, they 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 were uh, on the one hand um, uh, extremely anti-vanguardist. Yet on the other hand, they had the mindset of vanguardism on overdrive, and it's 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 just kind of a very interesting kind of aspect of it that they that in 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 constantly rejecting power, they that showed they they all too well understood in some ways how how power functions. I think maybe we can use this as a kind of jumping point. Talk about the third part of the book, which is. The sure. uh, continent that has repudiated power, uh, allegedly. Uh, yes, good call, good call. The, um, the European Union, uh, which is, you know, has a, a very substantial part of the book dedicated to it. Phil, what exercises you so much about the European Union? What oh, is God. it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that, with that preamble. Ten minutes, Phil, ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll do my best to keep it to ten minutes. But it was uh, the, and then of course, wait for your responses, and we'll be happy to respond to those. Are fun, but the, um, I mean, it was basic essentially. So I think the there's been, you know, uh, very. I mean, there's been lots of good 
work, I think, um, mainly by realists about the looking at the failures of the unipolar moment, the failures of liberal internationalism, liberal idealism, discussing U.S. grand strategy, um, the failures in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and, um, and you know, Patrick has been, um, has uh, his work here has been instrumental, um, but also, you know, say John G. Mearsheimer in looking at kind of um, the failures of Western foreign policy in Ukraine and how, um, how deluded. European and Western policy was um, in the Ukraine crisis and the, um, following the Ukrainian civil war. And this was very instructive to me because um, it was, you know, here were the guys who were, when I had been an undergraduate and particularly a master's and PhD student, who were supposedly the passe, you know, like I've already said, the kind of the crowd from the past who had nothing useful or interesting to say, who were more cutting and critical than any of the people who had been, who would tell you all about Foucault and Agamben and Heidegger and whoever, um, but wouldn't have anything to say about um, what was happening in Ukraine. Um, and that kind of stayed with me. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to not leave the European Union out of the picture. So I wanted to extend the critique um, of the dynamics of power, exactly as you say, Shahar, to the continent, the political, that political organization, which claimed to have superseded the power politics of the past, claimed to have superseded the kind of the passions of, um, of history and to draw attention to its foibles and to its problems. And all of this, I mean, it would, you know, I should just add as a kind of as a quick note to it. All of this was obviously sharpened by the aftermath of the Brexit referendum in the UK, the attempt to extricate the country from the European Union, because the response to that, I think, really drew my attention to the um, hostility to some of these basic political questions of um, of sovereignty, of national interest, of independence, of the nature of international cooperation, the idea that it was even uh, that these questions were open to revision or contestation, or even that there was anything to discuss, seemed to be so outrageous to so much of um, liberal opinion in the academy and outside of it that it seemed to me absolutely necessary to contest it and so all of this was brought into the critique of the european union that it is not a it is not a continent or an organization that has transcended power politics um, and that it needs to be included in our critique of liberal utopianism so not just the failures of nation building um, in afghanistan and iraq um, but also the failures of the European Union and its failure to construct a new type of political order, not least in the kind of economic devastation that came in the wake of austerity and um, in Greece and Italy and the southern tier of the Eurozone. And indeed, the time your 20 uh, years crisis, the new 20 years crisis, partly to the uh, creation of the euro currency, right? Yes. So I say, I mean, and I think I would stand by this, that I think the euro, the creation of the eurozone, which is to say a monetary union without a fiscal union, is um, more, it's more orary-eyed. I mean, it's more essentially utopian in its most kind of basic sense, in the sense of this soaring aspiration with no connection to reality, than anything you could find in the original 20 years crisis. I mean, the original 20 years crisis, and Carl talks about this, you know, various countries came off the gold standard in order to manage their balance of payments problems. They were trying and experimenting with all sorts of policies to escape the kind of dogmas of liberal economics that were costing them so dear in the midst of the Great Depression and all the economic challenges of that period. 
the eurozone is much more rigid than um, the gold standard in that sense because it's impossible to leave a burning building with the eurozone. So I genuinely think future historians will look back on it as a catastrophic failed experiment. Um, and I think it needs to be drawn attention to that it is something which is um, it incarnates um, some of the most extreme forms of liberal utopianism. And it came in the Unipolar moment. It came in the shadow of American supremacy. It came in the shadow of a kind of a cowed and defeated Russia that allowed the Western Europe to expand into Eastern Europe, essentially. So it was very much part of this moment. And it led into this kind of hubristic idea that it was possible to transform the continent in this way, to build you know, the insane idea of building a monetary union without a state to back it up. And um, we're still living in the in the backwash of that. And it will take, I think it will take many years before um, it's fully unwound and um, its consequences are felt. So is it destined to collapse or are we going to see? Um, yes or no? <laughs> Irene? Yes, yes, I yes. think so. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's I can't see, I, I think the European, I mean, the, the argument I make in the book at least is precisely because the European Union is constructed as a flight from mass politics. It will never be able to build the kind of political legitimacy that's needed for a sustainable political order that could complement the currency union. And that contradiction cannot be overcome because the whole point of the European Union is to avoid um, the kind of legitimacy that is enjoyed at the national level. And therefore, it seems to me as that is its condition. And that seems to me an, an insuperable contradiction. And it will it there is no way for it to survive in its current form. So that would be my take. I remember at the very beginning of that's, the that's quite a sorry, sorry. No, no, go Pat. Yeah. That's quite a little powerful doing a lot of work caveat. It's stuck right at the end there. It's one survive in its current form. I, well, I, I, caught, I, I, I caught that yeah. just <laughs> just as you, just as you, just as your forces disappeared over the border. <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me. I suppose you're, you're right to picking up on it. Let me finesse. I suppose I could. So, in its current form, which is to say, I could see the eurozone being reassembled in such a way, for instance, that the northern tier, say the Benelux countries and Germany, maybe France, kind of survive in some kind of currency union, and the southern tier uh, detach um, or withdraw, particularly Italy and maybe Greece as well. Um, but it's to say that if were that to happen, and I think something like that will happen inevitably, then, you know, I mean, the the blow to the project is so severe that it is no longer resembles anything that we recognize as the height of the utopianism of the 1990s or the early 2000s. That moment is gone. So I think, you know, we might see, you know, might the euro might survive as more than one, you know, it might be a few countries, but it will not be this enormous grand continental scale project. It will never, I think once it suffers that kind of fatal first withdrawal, I think it will be very difficult to recuperate. I seem to remember the uh, start of, of the um, of our session here that Nick said something about wanting to take, uh, take up some of these points about the European Union. Um, that, uh, Sorry. That, um, right. Well, I, I mean, I, um, I'll, I'll say that I, I, I accept uh, more or less unequivocally uh, Phil's contention that the European Union today, obviously very, very captured by a, a neoliberal 
um, ideology and and as it's expressed today, you know, seemingly incapable. I mean, I think this is very well demonstrated by the way the EU has fudged its response to coronavirus, which is maybe something we can talk about if you guys want. But but I, I guess I don't know that I'm fully persuaded that the EU has always had a neoliberal genealogy, if you will. I mean, you see some people who are, shall we say, uh, anti-European Union, uh, who uh, maybe coming broadly from the left seem to sort of like see it as neoliberal avant la lettre. You know that who, who uh, sort of see it as a demassified political project from the beginning, and I, I just don't know that I fully buy that because I think in some ways you can see it as a kind of a clever enough project in the in the air in the first two or three decades of trying to kind of use domestic fractions of capital uh, in in various you know core European countries to, to use them again to use their interests against themselves. You know to kind of lure them even against their own sort of preferences kicking and screaming into a into a kind of a more mass uh, market regime and i i think in those days it, it was it was not entirely clear uh, that the european union would sort of necessarily hit 73 it was a post-war creature um and by 73 of course uh, and you know and the, the meter on government it, it it starts to become i think something else um, a lot of its trajectory changes, I think, and so I, I guess I don't, I don't, I don't see the EU as necessarily a PMC project uh, until a more, the more a, a defanged political entity that's kind of just like he- hopelessly incapable of doing anything but you know um, petty forms of regulation of you know the weight of a banana or something like this, and even incapable of developing any kind of robust foreign policy. I think the trajectory inherent in the EU prior to to, to the 70s at least pointed in a different direction. Now, that may have been stillborn, and it may never have given fruit to what it promised to. And maybe maybe it was always inevitable that it was going to become what it is today. I just don't know that, uh, that, I, that, I, that I can make that argument myself. And, then, and so that points, you know, that points then to me to the possibility, which I think is something I'll, I'll say, which I think probably Phil will find infuriating, and, and that's fair enough. But um, I, I don't know that that the EU can't be redirected. I, I, obviously, I think it would be very difficult to do that. I don't think it's even a given. But I, like capitalism itself, it, it it doesn't seem to have an alternative uh, in the offing. You know, and so, you know, you, you even sort of see this with like I, for one, I'm not particularly confident that the best thing for Greece would have been to leave the European Union, even after uh, the OHI referendum and the disgraceful way the European Union dealt with it. And and, and this is and this kind of gets to the core of a question that I have for for Phil, because, you know, as I said in my in my initial comments, when we when we were sort of getting going for the show here, um, I, I'm I'm very persuaded by Phil's critique of our time. You know, I think this application of car to our moment is is exemplary, and and we should read it and take it seriously. What I'm not certain I I'm not certain I fully buy into the idea that um, that 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 the the solution is to sort of which is inherent, I think, in Phil's argument, not just in this book but in his in his other work as well, which is that to to sort of re-embrace a kind of a sovereignty model because it's only through that that we rescue democracy. Now, maybe it's because. I have a, a sort of a different 
uh, origin point as a as a as a as a left wing thinker or left wing academic, whatever I am. But um, it seems to me that the point is to try to get us to some sort of post capitalism in, in the long run. That's what I aspire to. That's what I want. That's what I write for. That's what I'm an partisan for, if I if I can put it that way. Um, but I, I don't know what Phil is a partisan for at the end of the day uh, when, when I read his critique of the EU. And I'm getting into very sort of meta level stuff. And maybe I should stop there because I don't want to uh, I don't want to I, I don't want to dilute what I've already said by by offering that kind of a provocation to, to Phil. But I, I just wonder, like, if not the European Union, then what and, and, and to what end, I suppose. So uh, to respond to what Nick said, I I mean, I would agree. I think the European Union wasn't always a neoliberal project, though I think the neoliberals had their eyes on it from very early on. And this is well put out in um, Quince the Bodian's book, Globalists, where he talks about the kind of the deep um, connection between um, the kind of early post-war neoliberal liberals and the way in which they thought about the EU. But it wasn't, I mean, initially in many of, you know, in its initial phases, I mean, in many ways, it was a Gaullist kind of project um, that it was seen as a kind of as amplifying the power of nation states, in particular of amplifying the power of France. But I think where its origins are more telling is the fact that it was conceived as seeing mass politics as a problem. And national mass politics in particular is a problem, that the problem was the excess of nationalist passion. And that and this is why the justification for the original kind of coal and steel community, the earliest kind of um, cell form of the European Union, um, fusing the French and German coal and steel industries, the traditional kind of sinews of war making, combining them, was to take them out of the reach of domestic politicians. And that has always been part of the EU. So even though initially it wasn't conceived in as being part of this kind of neoliberal project, it was it was always conceived in um, opposition to the idea of mass politics at the national level. And so to my mind, and this hopefully answers Nick's question, but it seems to me to reinforce the idea that really we have had no lasting evidence of democratic politics beyond the national level. Um, and that seems to me to be a strong over, if you want to, you know, if modern politics begins at the start of the 19th century, over 200 years, it seems to me um, good enough reason that there is no, you have to begin for democratic politics has to begin at the national level and it can never really, um, and if you, you cut off those roots, then you end up with something which really isn't in any meaningful way, either mass or democratic. And so I think there is a deep kind of connection at that level between um, the nation and democracy. And even though the EU is not neoliberal in its origins, it was, I think, conceived to remove areas of policymaking from the potential control of mass politics that was always seen as a danger. Yeah, I, 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 that's a great response. I uh, appreciate that. I think that's maybe a way of kind of uh, maybe bringing this discussion to some kind of, uh, well, not conclusion, but thinking through what the implications of the book are, uh, looking at, at our own time and the kind of politics that we're dealing with. Uh, I think one of the really interesting takes in the book, for me at least, was uh, Bill's idea that we continue to relive the original um, 20 years crisis. Every tin pot demagogue essentially is a new fascist in the making, 
uh, every international political compromise is a new Munich. Um, we continue to live in that crisis. It's it's part of our imaginary, uh, but we do live in a different time. Um, and I think we've covered some of that already. So the question is, I guess, what is to be done? You know, what is to be done in our own uh, 20 years crisis and beyond? I mean, is the coronavirus crisis uh, World War II? Is something going to emerge out of this that's going to make things different? What is the way out? I mean, is it to be found in the resurrection of mass politics? Well, I'm reasonably pessimistic about that. So just putting it out there, what do you think is, um, what, what does the future hold for us? What can we do? I suppose, I mean, my answer would be, I think we, the only way to escape the 20 years crisis so that we don't kind of endlessly repeat it is to be willing to dismantle, not being terrified of uh, changing the status quo, not to imagine that every change in the status quo is fascism, revisionism, or, um, you know, kind of uh, threatens cataclysmic collapse into genocide and world war and what have you. So um, being willing to take more political risks and also being willing to unsettle the inherited structures, both international institutions and domestic level institutions of the 20th century. I think as long as we're unwilling to go past those inherited institutions, um, then we will we will never escape the 20th century. In fact, that would be my answer. And we need an intellectual class that's capable of asking those questions. Well, indeed. Uh, and I was struck when we were talking about the European Union, how often the debate about the European Union in Britain <laughs> at least, was not really about the European Union. It was a proxy cultural battleground for an internal fight over identity uh, and, and some economic matters as well, but so often very loose, loosely at best linked to the actual technical and material relationship with this, this giant construct that Britain was part of. And... I mean, we've been beating this drum for the entire hour and a half or so, but, I mean, the pattern recurs that at a moment of, of supreme importance, uh, lively minds were so unequal to the task of talking about it. Either they didn't talk about it or they talked about it only in very sort of parochial, identitarian terms, that the European Union stood for openness and internationalism, whereas if you were against that, you were a nationalist bigot, uh, full stop, end of story. And not not analysing populist revolt, but just denouncing it, and then being surprised when people didn't obey you. Uh, and they've been all all the way down to kind of almost the the frivolous. Some academics who can't say can't bring themselves to talk about it much much more beyond the Erasmus program that the European Union exists as a kind of um, uh, two way street for international tr st studies, uh, some students to study abroad as though there was nothing more fundamental on the table, which is which connects to a wider problem that when we talk about these great matters of state, actually quite a lot of academics talk about as, as in terms of being a sort of um, sort of disgruntled bourgeoisie. You know, they say, well, of course we should give 0.7% uh, of GDP to, to foreign development because it's a great opportunity for young people to go and travel. What, so the Britain gives out development money so that your wealthy relatives can go on a poverty safari. I mean, there are much bigger questions on the table about how and why Britain helps other countries. 
And so there's this tremendous kind of a, a class that regards itself as internationalist and and diverse and cosmopolitan actually, and this is ironic given Bill, Bill's focus in the book, actually turns out to be very inward-looking and parochial, the very thing they accuse everyone else of being. And so I think Phil's book is a very important stride in correcting that. Well, maybe Shahar wants to offer some thoughts here uh, look, to turn uh, the mic uh, on the uh, on the host. Yeah. <laughs> I, I let the uh, the book speak for itself. I think that people should definitely go and read it. Um, I, I took an enormous amount out of it. Uh, it it sort of sharpened a lot of things that have been floating around in my own head for quite a while. And and Phil and I and, and others have been talking about these things for a while. So. It was really, uh, you know, very exciting to, to see that in print. Um, I, I, I don't have any answers. I, I keep telling that to people. People sometimes ask me, what do you think about, uh, you know, the challenges of our time? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the book hints at the right questions to ask, but I can't say that uh, I have any clear answers about what uh, the solutions are, are going to look like. Apart from just expressing my commitment to, to uh, you know, mass politics, um, uh, something that is not uh, held in uh, great esteem today, um, and putting my faith in our capacity to find solutions to our problems um, collectively. But um, precisely what that solution is going to look like, uh, I, I think it's about my pay grade a little bit. Um, and, and maybe thinking that we academics can find those solutions is precisely part of the problem. Um, that um, Phil is talking about in the book, and maybe you may well be right, Shahar, that the um, there is you know that the the conceit that academics can come up with a solution is um, is indeed part of the problem, um, and that in fact the solutions will be given to us um, by the world itself in terms of the way in which politics develops, and it will be up for us perhaps to um, to clarify and kind of perhaps dig a little deeper with respect to what's offered, but that the idea that we can kind of come up with our own solutions ex nihilo out of um, what we have in front of us is probably, that probably is um, a hubristic conceit. And if yes. it's kind of cut away by virtue of more kind of, um, you know, by we no longer kind of live in a unipolar world in which Western academics feel that the world is at their feet and they can simply devise kind of solutions for the world. Um, perhaps that's a good thing in itself. Um, the only other thing I would like to say is I would really like to thank all three of you for taking the time to um, to talk about my book in such with such kind of um, intensity and it's such uh, with such scrutiny and depth and I really appreciate it and it's uh, it's a wonderful privilege I think for any author to have their work discussed um, with such seriousness so thank you all very much well, thank you Phil you're welcome thank you. I uh, just at the end there Phil I don't know if we would want to sort of assume that we're still recording or something or, or we can just I'll cut it out at the end but the uh, that that kind of uh, gesture towards history as maybe having answers that we ourselves can't because we're not there yet. Right. Um, that that's, uh, you know, Matt Chrisman on Chapo trap house calls that being black pilled, <laughs> which is a, a great, uh, turn of phrase, I think, you know, cause obviously in the matrix you have the blue pill, the red pill, but you know, maybe you just got to wait until history shows you the next uh, stage. So, um, it's, it's kind of interesting that, uh, whether it, I've, I've heard different, commentators sort of take this on lately, including Zizek, of course, um, you know, and, and, and sort of, um, I think I even heard uh, Zizek sort of frame it like, so look, the solution right now 
to this question of what what comes next. He's like, it, 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 you, you, we, we, we must all basically all be Leninist social democrats right now, you know, uh, fervently committed, absolutely relentlessly strategic, uh, serious about power. But at the at the end of the day, um, you know, not just sort of committed to 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 what you know would be considered pretty lightweight fare um maybe in in 1917 in terms of like social goals social ambitions uh but you know because because the 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 the, the mass movement isn't there we kind of have to wait keep plugging away at it keep keep trying you know probably not rewarded much uh, from time to time but occasionally you'll catch these waves um, whether it's a Corbyn moment or a Bernie moment or something like in Portugal, um, you know, and it, and it will be disappointing because of course, you know, we're, we're looking at the Brazilianization of, 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 of the world, uh, to borrow a phrase. Uh, but, um, th- there's, there's no point in kind of pretending we have the answers. I think it, it, it's, it's, it's to kind of like let the let politics meet you halfway at the end of the day you know keep working but uh, 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 the, the 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 change will come it always does it's just it, it's not going to be it's not going to be something we can sort of rationally or strategically plan from here um, because it never has worked like that it always comes in an unexpected way or a surprising way I don't know if Wait how till you, guys you hear feel God's about. footsteps coming <laughs> Bismarck said oh yeah that's a good, yeah, I, never, I, I, I didn't know that <laughs> that's a good quote. Or something to that effect. Wait till you hear that, and then you grab grab God's coattails as you hear it coming. I went, I went for a more reactionary example than you, Nick. Okay. <laughs> There's a point that it points back to what we said before, though. That we at least need to have the interest to find out about all these different possibilities out there. Because uh, one of the things that really strikes me when I talk to most of my colleagues, um, both immediate and beyond, is just how disinterested they are in politics. Yeah, exactly. These are people. You study politics and hate politics. Absolutely, yeah. They just don't. They don't want to know about these things. No. They, they don't care. No. Um, and uh, I think I think that's I think definitely the first step is to actually take an active interest um, in the various possibilities out there, whether it's the kind of thing that you're describing there, Nick. You know, the, the, this kind of uh, trying to keep the flame alive and latch on to different things. You know, whatever you think is the right way to go, but. Or something else, but you know that that has to be the starting point uh, because I think um, as as Phil I think absolutely nails in a book this liberal utopianism it's it's on its last legs. I mean it's just it, the distance between it and reality is just getting bigger and bigger every day. Um, and um, yeah, the very and, it, is that it is disappointing. Sorry, go ahead, Patrick. A, a, a distant, an, an uninterest in politics, which, but they even even for some who are interested in politics, they're not interested in persuasion. Yeah. They're not not interested in trying to, you know, open up someone's mind on something and kind of move them. It's all about sorting sorting the good from the bad and then denouncing the bad and mobilising against it. Uh, and and then can, can these days increasingly being shocked that the people they're treating like that are turning from them. That it's not working. Uh, I mean, this is this is not a, just a phenomenon of the left. Of course, it's it's a, it's a, it's what's happening in our politics at the moment of this kind of this kind of terrible righteousness. Yeah, mm. guys, this sure. is great. I, I hope um, to maintain 
connections with all of you. Obviously, Phil, we talk sometimes, but Shahar, we'll talk more. And Patrick, love to chat with you again. So, all right, guys, right. we'll see you soon. Thanks so much for everyone. Yeah. Au revoir. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All the best. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. Cheers.